Hi, my name is Linda. Throughout this series, we are reading each psalm as a call and response. If you are able, please stand as we read Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who also do no wrong, but walk in God's ways. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous ordinances. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your ordinances. And I shall walk in liberty for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before and shall not For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I revere your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your testimonies are wonderful, Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. With open mouth I pant, because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for you are just to those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. The word of the Lord. Would you please remain standing as we pray? Gracious Father, we come to you as your gathered people. Your adopted sons and daughters who have been made brothers and sisters with one another. And ask today as we continue in this gathering and explore your word together that you would speak to us, that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and that you would then enliven our hearts with your life, that we might take that out into the world, that others might see and know our God and Father. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Jason Jackson, one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Glenn Packham, our lead pastor, is preaching the sermon he preached for us last week uh, up at New Life North uh, today. 
I want you to imagine with me for a moment, and this won't be hard for some of you because you actually are these things, but imagine with me for a moment that you are a poet or a songwriter. And imagine that you've been given the opportunity, the time and the space and the resources, everything that you need to pen your magnum opus, to pen your greatest work, your best poem, your most beautiful song. What would your poem or your song be about? What would you write about? What would you express in that moment, in those words? Maybe you'd write a poem about a particular person who's made a deep impact on your life. Or maybe you'd write about a place that you've been able to see or an experience that you've had that was utterly transformative that even thinking about that experience today still sort of takes your breath away. Or maybe you would write about a hobby or a sport, something that you just love to do. Or maybe a deep passion inside of you that you wish everybody could see or know or experience. I think for me, as I'm thinking about the things I'd write about, I think about maybe writing a love song to my wife, which anytime I try anything like that, it fails miserably. But if I were actually a poet or a songwriter, maybe it would go well. And expressing the joy of 14 years of friendship. Or maybe you'd write about that moment of holding a child for the first time, and that great joy in looking in that little one's face. Or those moments when I come home from work and my kids scream, Daddy, and they come running to the door and tackle me and my laptop and everything else that I'm trying to hold on to. Or maybe there's that, I've been, had those moments a few times where I've been able to go surfing. Uh, and there's this moment when you, after you paddle out and you sort of sit up on your board and you're waiting to kind of choose the wave that you're going to ride. And there, things are just peaceful. There's a moment you're just sitting out on the board and looking at the waves and the ocean, and it's a sort of solitary, beautiful place of waiting. Or maybe it would be about writing about a warm cup of coffee, a hot piece of pie, some cold vanilla ice cream on top of that, and a crossword puzzle because I'm 85 on the inside, and that just, to me, just sounds so good. If you could write your magnum opus, what would it be about? We're in the middle of a preaching series here through the book of Psalms, and we've been looking at various Psalms in this collection, but the Psalms is really a collection of Israel's, ancient Israel's poems and prayers and songs. It's these 150 poems and songs that have been collected together and preserved for generation upon generation. It really is kind of a collection of Israel's greatest hits. This is their magnum opus kind of work within the middle of that. And in all of those 150 psalms that are there, Psalm 119 particularly stands out. And it stands out because by far and away, it is the longest of all the psalms, 176 verses. In fact, as we were getting ready to read, somebody came forward and said, are we really going to read the whole thing? We thought about doing that, but then we know the nine o'clock service would just be ending right about now. 176 verses long. 
It's actually organized into 22 sets of eight. So 22 sort of sets of eight verses each. The reason there's 22 is because there's one for each consonant in the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is this epic acrostic. So the very first sort of set of eight verses, every single verse begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, begins with the, word, the letter Aleph. And then you get through eight verses of that, and now in the second stanza, you get eight verses that all begin with the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Beit. And it goes on and on through all 22 letters in the alphabet. It is a literary feat that's been accomplished here in Psalm 119. And what may be, though, the most astonishing thing about it is what the psalmist chooses as his subject. But if you think about all the things that we find in the Psalms, all the things that the psalmist could write about, this is not a 176-verse love song to God's creation. It's talking about sunsets and mountains and rivers and lakes and all the stars in the sky. And he doesn't write about that. It's not a 176-verse sonnet about the Exodus and God delivering his people up out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and calling them to himself. It's not 176 verses about the splendors and the wonders of the temple in Jerusalem. It's not 176 verses about the feats of David. You could expect any of those things, but instead... It's 176 verses about God's laws. Did anybody choose that as their subject that you were going to write on in your poem? No? Nobody. 176 verses, 22 sets of eight. In fact, the reason that there's probably eight verses in each kind of set is because the psalmist uses eight different words to describe God's law. His laws, his word, his uh, ordinances, his precepts. It goes on and on. There's eight different words that he uses synonyms for God's law. And he uses each of them more than 20 times. So that nearly every single verse in the psalm has some word about God's laws. 176 verses. And what we have to ask ourselves is Why? Of all the things that you could write about, of all the songs that you could sing, of all of the topics or the subjects that could, be a, that could take up the longest psalm in the Psalter, why God's laws? Why God's words? Why this? We talked about before how the book of Psalms is actually composed of five books, that the Psalms were written and uh, composed and organized and arranged at various places or at various times, but in their final form, they're all brought together into five books. And those five books correspond with the story of Judah, with the story of the southern kingdom of Israel. So the first book, the first 41 Psalms, can be sort of related to, in some way, David's rise. We find here uh, Psalm 23 about David's life as a shepherd and then learning about God that way. Book two really is about David's reign. In the midst of that, we find Psalm 51 and his lament over what has happened with Bathsheba. 
book three, we learn about what happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. We find the, the kingdoms splitting and the kingdoms falling, and Judah falling particularly to Babylon. And then in book four, we find Judah off in exile. They've been taken away from their land, from their temple, from the space in which they have their identity and move around in. And then book five, there's psalms related to Judah's return them coming back to the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild this city wall. So Psalm 119 falls here. It's a psalm for rebuilding out of the ruins. It's a psalm for rebuilding out of exile. Last week when Pastor Glenn was talking to us about Psalm 112, he said that there's experiences that we have in life, experiences like exile, that make us wonder if there's any order left in the world. That as we experience death, as we experience loss, as we experience broken dreams, as we experience hurt and pain and violence in our world, when things that we'd planned and organized and orchestrated to go so well suddenly all unravel and fall apart, we start to wonder, is there any order in the world? And Psalm 112 reminded us that God has actually ordered the world according to righteousness and justice. And then at the end of the day, this is what the world is going to look like. God is putting the world back to rights, and he is making all things evil to be judged and justice to come about. That God has ordered the world according to righteousness and justice, and that those things in the end will turn out to be true. But the reality that Israel had to live with is that their exile came because they were neither righteous nor just that they had found themselves away from their land because they had not lived with the grain of the universe. They had not lived in the way that God ordered it to be. And so they find themselves in a place of loss and everything in upheaval. But now God has shown his favor toward them and brought them back to the land. And what do they turn to to figure out how to rebuild their land, how to rebuild their life? They knew that they need to rebuild the temple. They knew that they needed to rebuild the city walls, but deeper than that, they knew they needed to rebuild their lives. They needed to build their lives in such a way that they would not end up in exile again. They knew that they needed to build their lives on righteousness and justice, and they also knew where to find that. See, because as they went into exile, and as they found themselves away from land, away from temple, away from king, away from all the things that they knew to be true, the things that were the center of their religious life together, they had one thing left, the Torah, God's laws, God's words. And so while they were in exile, they spent their time studying and memorizing and reciting and internalizing God's word. This became the center of their religious life, the center of their life together. And as they come back from exile into the land again, they knew where to go for a blueprint on how to rebuild. They were returning to God's laws. This is fundamentally why the psalmist writes a 176-verse love, love song to God's law because God has revealed his righteousness and his justice in his word. 
That it's in his word, it's in his laws that we actually discover the way of righteousness and justice. This is actually why God gave it to his people in the first place. He called the people, uh, called Abraham to come and follow him and to do righteousness and justice in the land. He rescued Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. And then he gave them the law so that they might learn how to live free. They might learn how to live justly and rightly in the land so that through them, they might live in with the grain of the universe and through them, God might start to reorder the world. See, throughout the Old Testament, the law is always seen as a gift. It's always seen as a grace. It's something that God has given to his people to help bring them life and through them, life to the world. This is why. We have a 176-line poem expressing deep affection for God's law. Listen to some of the things the psalmist says. Verse 11, I I keep your word close in my heart, so I won't sin against you. The word there is treasure. Treasure is God's word. I rejoice in the content of your laws as if I were rejoicing over great wealth. The psalmist loves the law more than the lottery. It's rejoicing over God's laws. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget what you've said. I love your instruction, and I think about it constantly. This is the psalmist's disposition to the Scriptures. Of course, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is ours? What is our disposition toward the Bible? What, is, what do we do with this book? Do we delight in the same way the psalmist does, or do we do something different? When I think about what we normally do with the Bible, I think we do several things. First of all, we spend a lot of time defining the Bible, trying to figure out what this thing is. And some of these activities are actually good and necessary. It's important for us to wrestle with what actually is this book? Because what we fundamentally believe it is will determine how we use it, right? If we believe that the Bible is just like God's version of chicken soup for the soul, then we will read it only when we find ourselves distraught, only when we find ourselves downcast. It will sort of be limited to that sort of place. If we think that the Bible is simply and only an instruction manual, then the only time that we may read it is when we actually feel like we need to know what to do right here and now. Like the time that we need to program, reprogram the Blu-ray player that we haven't used in six months. We're like, what do we do? Oh wait, there's an instruction manual somewhere tucked away, hidden in a drawer. Let's go find it and pull it out and begin to look at it. It will become sort of a utilitarian sort of book in our life. See how we define it depends upon how we use it. We must kind of go through that work. The second thing that we do, and probably maybe what we find ourselves doing most often now, is defending it. Then in the midst of all of the conversations in our culture that are happening, the Bible gets brought into a lot of conversations in a way that makes us feel like more than anything else what we need to do is defend it. If you were paying attention to kind of social media or news outlets this last month, GQ Magazine listed the Bible as one of the 21 books you do not have to read. This is what they said. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, 
but who in actuality have not read it. We'll say more about that later. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. I think part of this is they've missed what the Bible is, and therefore, this is kind of the response. And so there's a part of us that knows that it's a good and necessary thing for us to do to be able to define the Bible so that we can talk about the Bible in ways that actually help people make sense of what it is and how it is actually supposed to work in our lives. I think the third thing that we do, and probably the thing maybe that me as a pastor and others do most often is dissect it, right? We try to break it down into all the parts, cut it open, break it open, try to see what it is that's going on inside of it. This is incredibly important when we're trying to figure out how do we understand really difficult passages. There are passages in the Bible that trouble us. There are passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are passages in the Bible that we don't know what to do with. And so what we have to do is sort of dissect it, get down into the bones of it, and to trying to figure out, okay, what actually is this? Trying to understand the literary context, trying to understand the historical context, trying to understand the cultural context, trying to understand all that goes around that so that we might understand it as it was intended to be so that we might live in relationship to it. So this is an important part to be able to kind of dig around in there. But at times when we dissect things, we actually kill them. Actually, whenever we dissect something, it's dead. We have to be careful of doing the same thing with the Bible, right? And then the other thing that we do, and maybe the thing that uh, some of us might do most often, that comes most naturally for us, is we discuss it or debate it, right? The Bible just becomes sort of a thing that we're talking about and debating in significant ways. And some of this can actually be really helpful, I'm in the midst of an email exchange right now going back and forth with a member of New Life North talking about the meanings of particular passages in the Bible. And it's so much fun. We're having a blast. Like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And talking about it and discussing it and listening to his point of view and he's listening to mine and he sends me something to read and I send him something to read. And what's happening is it's enlivening our thoughts around it and our conversation around it, helping us to understand it and see it from different sides. But too often, our discussions and debates actually lead to divisions. And so all of those activities, though they are good, have to be rooted and grounded in something else to keep them from becoming something other than what they were intended to be. What they have to be grounded in is what God invites us to first and foremost. That God invites us first and foremost to devote ourselves to the scriptures as an expression of our devotion to him. To delight in them, to treasure them, to cherish them, to read them. This is the invitation from God, is to take this book, to pick it up, and to actually read it. And I know that seems novel, but that is the invitation. And what the Psalm 119 gives us is a picture of what this looks like. What does it mean 
to devote ourselves to the scriptures as a way of devoting ourselves to God? How is it that we can devote ourselves to texts as an expression of our devotion to the one who gave it to us? And I think it looks like a couple things. The first thing it looks like is it looks like an immersive reading. That begins with reading, of course. That we pick it up and that we read it and we read it and we read it and we read it. Because we find there's something about committing ourselves to reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it that actually causes our hearts to go toward it. I mean, think about the kind of like books that you read or the series that you love or the authors that you love. That love began with what? It began with the first read. It began with picking it up and reading it and beginning to dive in. Listen to what the psalmist says. He's thinking about the way that he reads the scripture. It's not just reading, but almost kind of going to this place of beyond that, what spills out. He says, I will think about your precepts. I will meditate on your precepts and examine all your paths. He says, I'm worn out by longing every minute for your rules. Like worn out. So I just want more. Consumed every, every one of his thoughts. It says, your word is so pleasing to my taste buds. It's sweeter than honey in my mouth. I'm studying them, breaking them open, cracking them open, studying. It says, my eyes encounter each hour of the night as I think about your word. This is the book he can't put down. This is binge reading at its finest. Like all through the night, I need to get to the next chapter. I need to get to the next book. I need to pull off into the parking lot and finish what I'm reading. I need to skip this meeting or go to this other thing because he's so consumed by it. He's reading and studying and memorizing and meditating and reciting. He's embedding himself in the text and embedding the text in his life. And we actually know what this looks like. Anybody here do fantasy sports at all? I mean, no one wants to confess, but this is what we do with fantasy sports, right? We like immerse ourselves in the players and the stats and the teams and your like love for it goes beyond your favorite team to all of the other teams and all of the other players and all of the other things that are happening. And so that you get up in the morning and you're reading baseball box scores. Like, I need to know not just how my team did, but others did. Or maybe it's Sunday that you're sitting in church and looking on, nobody? Uh, there's a few. Like, not, and you're not just following the Broncos. It's trying to follow all the other teams. And all of a sudden, it becomes this whole language that gets developed in this love. And it grows and it grows and it grows. So we've immersed ourselves in it. And a friend in college who was a huge Tolkien fan. So not just like reading the Lord of the Rings, not just reading the Hobbit, but reading those other books that I don't even know the names of them all. He read all of them, but he didn't just read those books. He like studied the maps, right? So that he could like chart out where anything in Middle Earth actually lives and exists. He could like recreate Maps, because he immersed himself in this. But he didn't just read the books and didn't just study the maps. He learned the languages. He spoke Elvish. He immersed himself in this world. And what happened is when he immersed himself in that world, he was able to see things that I couldn't see. He was able to make all of these connections and say, oh yeah, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And it grew for him into a passionate love. 
what if we read the scriptures that way? We immersed ourselves in the story that God's telling. We immersed ourselves in the gift that God has given us. We find ourselves being consumed even as we're consuming. And our whole lives now begin to take part in the story of God. The second thing I think we see from the psalmist is not only an immersive reading, but a loyal reading. That the psalmist is deeply committed not just to knowing God's word, but actually doing it. That there's something about not just taking all of these words in, but living these words out that actually deepens his affection for them. As he sees how God's word plays itself out in his life. Then he moves to a place of loyalty. Listen to this. He says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I'm set on your rules. The Lord is my possession. I promise to do what you have said. I hurry to keep your commandments. I never put it off. So the psalmist knows that the telos of knowing God's word is actually doing it. That this is why the word was given, not just as a book to be enjoyed, but actually as a way to be lived, as something to be put into practice. This is actually quite difficult for us. That when we start talking about obedience, we start talking about doing, we all start to kind of shake a little bit on the inside. But this is actually the central component of discipleship, right? Jesus, at the end, before he ascends into heaven, gathers his disciples together. And he tells them to go into all the world and... Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. At one point, Jesus says to his disciples that you want to know what a wise person is like? A wise person is someone who hears these words of mine and does them. They're like somebody who builds their house on a rock. Jesus' brother James at one point says that faith without works is dead. There's something about our belief. There's something about our reading. There's something about these things that if we really truly believe that God's word is the way of righteousness and justice, then we're not just reading it to know about righteousness and justice, but we're reading it in hopes that God make, might make us righteous and just, that we might go into the world and actually live this out for the sake of ourselves and others. There's a loyal reading and then I think the third thing he teaches us is a prayerful reading. The reading of Scripture is always accompanied by prayer. As the psalmist knows deep in his bones that he can't keep God's law without God's help. That he can't keep the way of righteousness and justice without the right and just God empowering him to do so. He says this, he says, I have sought you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from any of your commands. Help me understand so I can guard your instruction and keep it with all my heart. I cry out to you, save me. Why? So that I can keep your laws. He's praying and asking God, help me not just to know, but actually help me to do. This is the heart's desire, is to live in right relationship with you and others, to live according to righteousness and justice. But I need your help so God save me so that I might actually live with the grain of the universe. And I think this becomes most clear when we think about the central prayer of the psalm. 
there's a particular prayer that the psalmist prays 16 times in the midst of Psalm 119. And one of those examples is this, Psalm 119, verse 88. Make me live again. Make me live again. According to your faithful love, so I can keep the law you've given. The corresponding Hebrew verb, that, verb that's used here for make me live again is used, as I said, 16 times in Psalm 119. It most properly probably means in this context, Lord, bring me back to life. Or Lord, resurrect me. So the psalmist knows that the reason that he can't keep God's laws is because something inside of him is essentially dead and needs to be brought back to life again. The psalmist prays over and over and over and over again, God, make me alive again by your word. Restore me, enliven me, resurrect me, bring me back to life. See, for the ancient Israelites, their story going into exile was a death. It's a loss of everything that they knew to be true. And the coming back into the land was a resurrection. It was a second chance at life. It was a second chance to be able to not repeat the things that had happened before. And when they wanted to rebuild their life, they knew they needed to rebuild it on how God had revealed the way of righteousness and justice in his word, where they knew that they didn't just need that, but they actually needed something to happen on the inside. They needed to be brought back to life. And if there's one thing that we can say as Christians looking back on the Old Testament is that we know that that word that's being talked about became flesh and dwelt among us. That the word of God came in the person of Jesus. And Jesus came and didn't abolish the law, but he actually fulfilled it. That Jesus came as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus came and he died for us and was raised again back to life so that we may actually experience resurrection and that Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit as a first fruit in us of that resurrection so that as believers in Jesus, we are actually being made alive again, that we've been brought back from our own exile that we've been reunited with God in Christ, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters, that we've been breathed on again, just as Adam was in the beginning. We've been breathed on again by the Holy Spirit, and now our life is coming back to us. And as we're learning what it means to live in the new world that God has given us, the new creation that we've been brought into, we turn back to the Scriptures. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, Jesus, continue to make us alive. Continue to resurrect our hearts. Continue to resurrect our lives and help us to build our new life in you on the things that have always been true. Help us to build our life on your righteousness and justice that we might be the people of Abraham who go into the world doing righteousness and justice. So we know the Word made flesh that brings us back to life, the Spirit that's been breathed into us that helps us 
to immerse ourselves in the scriptures, to live the scriptures, and teaches us to pray the scriptures for our sake and for the life of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, as we come to the table of Christ, we come as people who've been overcome by your word, by people who have been made alive by the word made flesh. As we come and we remember Jesus and what he's done, would you continue your work inside of us as we receive your word? Would you continue to make us alive? Would you resurrect us, restore us, and help us to build our lives on what is good and right and beautiful and true? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.